0: This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years, and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Aviva, Genworth Financial, The Hartford, Mass Mutual, MetLife. Liberty Life, American General, and Pacific Life and Annuity. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen.
1: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates New England Operations, and we're bringing you this edition of Ringler Radio from the beautiful island of Puerto Rico and the annual meeting of the National Structured Settlement Trade Association. As you know, our topics cover a wide range of issues which are important to trial attorneys, defense attorneys, and claim professionals. And here at NASTA, we're covering the important issues for the settlement industry as a whole. You can find every Ringler Radio Show on our website, ringlerassociates.com, or at thelegaltalknetwork.com. Well, on this show, we're gonna talk about a very important issue, uh, a subject that all of us need to uh, pay attention to, and that's the subject of ethics in mediation and negotiation. And uh, first, we're gonna talk about ethics in, in mediation, uh, with our guest, Judith McKay, who's a professor from Nova Southeastern University. I think that's in Fort Lauderdale, is that right? Yes, it is. Yes. And uh, Judith has been involved in conflict resolution for uh, 20 years as a mediator, arbitrator, attorney, and uh, a lot of other roles, too, I'm sure. Well, welcome, Judith, to Ringo Radio.
2: Thanks a lot. I'm happy to be here.
1: Great. Well, you know, I just uh, heard your presentation. You did a tremendous job here at the NASDA uh, conference. And you talked a lot about the role of ethics in mediation. So why don't we start out by talking about the role of mediation in litigation and, uh, and even in non-litigated matters. What, what is the role of mediation?
2: Well, mediation has become certainly a very pivotal role in litigated and even non litigated matters in the past 20 years starting back in the 1970s uh, mediation arose for example in the state of Florida as a means to uh, try to help parties reach settlements in neighborhood and other disputes and since then it's just taken off into family commercial and all sorts of, of areas and what mediation helps parties do um, prior to actually having to go to trial it helps them identify what their issues issues are. It helps them brainstorm on options and alternatives, and um, hopefully come up with a settlement that is mutually satisfactory for both of them. It enables them to help co-create um, what that ultimate settlement would be, with the hopes that when people do that, they're more invested in the outcome, because they're act- actually the experts of their own situation, much more so than, say, a court is.
1: Well, as you as you see these models of mediation out there, there are several models, as I recall. Um, is there an overriding standard of ethics that you see that all models of mediation seem to uh, seem to take?
2: Um, Yes, there actually is. Um, In fact, most states states that have um, formalized mediation and have mediation um, coming under the purview usually of the state Supreme Court very much the way the practice of law does, um, have established uh, standards for mediation, for mediation ethics, and regardless of what model um, a mediator may choose to use, um, they all fall under the same standards of, of ethics. There's even a national um, standard that's being proposed by not only the American Bar Association, the American Arbitration Association, but also the Association for Conflict Resolution that looks at a standard of you know, mediator responsibilities and ethics, and so regardless of the model that someone may employ, they are still bound by those same ethical considerations. And in a number of states, such as in Florida, there's even um, advisory, ethical advisory tribunal, so to speak, MIAC hmm. we, we, in Florida, where people can submit questions about ethical responsibilities interesting
1: what uh, you know when we go to mediations and all of us in the structured settlement field or participate uh, in mediations uh, one of the issues we we always want to deal with are the qualifications of the mediator how qualified are they and a lot of them seem to advertise these days and uh, we also get to these mediation sessions and you know sometimes mediators will kind of predict the outcome uh, or or try to predict the outcome by in their conversations with us. And I I always wondered about the ethics of all that, uh, the confidentiality issues of mediation. How do ethics enter into that whole realm of, of mediation
2: well yeah you ask uh, some very good questions um, certainly the qualifications of mediators are key the same way as one would not want to use an unqualified professional to do their taxes or examine their heart or represent them in court you don't want a mediator who's not qualified either not only waste time and in and uh, money for the parties involved, but it also discourages people from being able to really try to settle their cases. So in some states, there are different trainings and different um, certifications that a mediator may go through, but regardless, one really needs to know what's the training of the mediator, what's the expertise of the mediator, what's their professional background outside of mediation. Many times, they're lawyers or they're accountants or they're people with other professional backgrounds, so that's certainly key. (coughs) <coughs> me. Confidentiality is obviously pivotal, and in many cases there will be confidentiality by operation of law. Otherwise, there are confidentiality agreements, which are certainly very important. If you really want people to be able to have a level of candor, um, they have to know exactly what the parameters of that are. You know, will be. And yeah, mediators cannot be crystal balls. We can't predict what the outcome will be. Um, we can certainly be devil's advocates, and we can certainly, you know, seek especially in caucuses and those private sessions that we can have with, with both parties. Um, separately, we can certainly ask about the strengths and weaknesses of their case, so that we can be that form of reality check. Sometimes a party may think um, that their case really doesn't have very, very many holes in it, and it can become rather apparent that it's a piece of Swiss cheese. And so that's very helpful.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. One time, a mediator was joking with me that he wished he had a contingency fee arrangement on these mediations because uh, he, he, he senses he saves some of the defendant's money and sometimes gets the plaintiffs more. Uh, obviously, that's a conflict and an ethical issue that he was uh, he was joking about. But you know. It, it's it's a real ethical issue, isn't
2: it? It is an ethical issue, and in fact, mediators have to be very upfront about their fees ahead of time. Um, we're upfront about what the fee is, what any costs or expenses incurred would be, um, how it's going to be paid. Oftentimes it's divided between the parties or paid in some other way. That has to be upfront, too. And because of a conflict of interest, we can have no stake in the outcome. Mm-hmm. So that certainly means we, cannot, we can never have contingency fees or else otherwise the whole... Uh, conflict of interest would be eroded.
1: Well, something a little more close to home uh, that happens more often is mediators oftentimes are asked to evaluate the case during the course of mediation. And, and so let's ask the question, can and should uh, mediators evaluate the value of the case uh, in an independent fact?
2: Um, you basically ask, again, two really really interesting questions. And In the mediation realm, there's that is very controversial. There are certainly um, two different schools of thought. One school of thought says the mediator should never evaluate and should never really give um, an opinion, a professional opinion on the outcome of the case because it erodes the self-determination of the parties. The parties are there to determine their own outcome, and when the mediator appears to make it seem as if their case is weaker or stronger, that can have that tendency of erosion. The other school of thought basically says that um, a mediator has an expertise. They're chosen because of their expertise. They've seen these types of cases before. Um, oftentimes, they may be um, attorneys who have also tried these cases before. And so, therefore, why not tap into their expertise? Or maybe they have a financial expertise. Why not tap into that expertise? And I think it all boils down to how it is done um, in terms of that self-determination. And mediation is different from you know, an early neutral evaluation, an ENU, where literally you're going early on in a case to a neutral to say... I really need this thing evaluated, that's not a mediation, that's something different. It's almost an arbitration
1: exactly. type, type of setting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, when we are in at, at mediation, uh, oftentimes the mediators ask the defendants uh, in our private session that I happen to be sitting in, uh, you know, we would ha- go a long way to solving and settling this case. If, if you could just apologize to the other side, they're, they're sitting there, you know, having this tension of, of wanting someone to say that mm-hmm. they, they they wronged them. and even though no one wants to admit guilt, apologies during mediation I have found seem to have a great salutary effect. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there ethical? Are there ethical considerations around those those areas? For
2: the mediator, no. Mm-hmm. Um, there could certainly be considerations for attorneys and for people representing various parties who are about to apologize, and so that's something they have to look at from a mediation. As a mediator, no. Um, and you're right. Apology can go. Hugely um, can go over hugely with a party who feels that they've been wronged, and oftentimes can break an impasse that's been going on because now they're feeling like somebody has heard me, somebody understands I've been hurt, um, and somebody is acknowledging my pain, and that's a human need to be heard, be listened to, and be validated. And so you're right; that's it's huge, and there's a lot of research going on in that right now.
1: Well, you know, it, it seems it seems to help an awful lot. Uh, you know, I've had a case where someone simply wanted to look, you know show the other side pictures of a of a nursing home where their where their mother had been uh, so somewhat abused, and to see the, the conditions, and it was simply the acceptance and looking at the pictures that caused uh, the case to finally settle It's, it's interesting to see. You, you had a quote that I thought was very very key. You, you said that ethics, if I'm quoting you correctly, ethics were really the cornerstone of our relationships. They form the cornerstone of our relationships, and especially among competitors, which a lot of us in the brokerage community are competitors, but there's no reason why we can't ethically all kind of be in the same game. And how do you feel about that?
2: To me, it's, it's key, and it really is the cornerstone of who we are, because in the end, we not only have to look ourselves in the mirror and know that we've operated in an ethical fashion, but We want to be seen as ethical people. We want to be seen as ethical practitioners. Um, And we want to be held out to the public. How can we expect the public to trust us, regardless of what profession we're in, whether we're brokers, attorneys, mediators, if, in fact, we're not behaving ethically? And just as we say, you know, good manners begins at home, ethics begins at home, too. It begins with our interrelationships, um, even with our competitors.
1: I want to just thank you again, Judith. You've, this has been an interesting topic. You know, we, we all are engaged in mediation, and uh, it's important for all of us to remember that even though we're all trying to fight that battle, that uh, in the end, it's, it's how our ethics really you know, form our, our, our whole basis of our whole, uh, our whole business, our whole existence. And uh, thank you for bringing that to our attention. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to deal with ethics in negotiation. Okay? We'll be right back.
0: Ringler Radio at the NASTA meeting in Puerto Rico. Don't miss all of our shows here, including an exclusive interview with U.S. Congressman Charles Wrangell. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top 3 rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates, is proud to be broadcasting from the NASTA Annual Meeting in Puerto Rico. Listen to all of our shows.
1: Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, and now we're going to turn to uh, another very interesting topic in the area of ethics. It's ethics and negotiation. And with me for this uh, segment is an expert on this subject, uh, Professor Edward Conlin who's the Associate Dean, Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. And Ed's an expert in conflict management and decision-making. He's also a writer, a researcher, and a NASA presenter. In fact, he just presented here at the NASA convention in Puerto Rico. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, he also teaches the CSSC, or Certified Structured Settlement uh, Consultant Program, that NASA holds each year at Notre Dame. And, you know, at having gone through it many years ago, I was so impressed with the Notre Dame campus uh, it was such an inspiring place that I've actually become a rooter for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish except when they play my Yukon huskies and I don't think that's an ethical problem, is it uh, no that's
3: not an ethical problem at all that's that's probably survival that's, uh, that, that,
1: exactly it's survival and uh, well welcome welcome Ed to uh, Ringler radio welcome thank you Well, you know we're talking about ethics and we're talking about negotiations and uh, you know, the way I see it, we we all start negotiating as children with our parents uh, yes. for a lot of different things. And then we get into the business world we grow up and we go to try to buy an automobile. And that's the essence of negotiation, if I ever saw it. But we as brokers now in the structured settlement industry, we're first and foremost negotiators. And uh, negotiations, as we all know, create certain ethical challenges and dilemmas. So what are some of those challenges, the ethical challenges that we as brokers face and that we should, should be thinking about as we do our, do our job?
3: Actually, the two examples that you, uh, you, you brought up um, brings to mind the idea that uh, um, as you become more of an expert in negotiating, um, you actually achieve um, a certain level of maturity in thinking about a negotiation situation. Um, I have grandchildren, and uh, uh, one of them's not quite two years old, and she already knows how to negotiate. There's absolutely no question about it. When uh, she does it, essentially um, nonverbally, even mm-hmm. though she she does have command of a few words, and uh, Dad wants her to do something, so he says, uh, "Ellie, would you please um, pick uh, the pen up off the floor?" And she looks at Dad and doesn't do anything. Right? Yeah. She's taking a position. Dad says. If you pick the pen off the floor, I will give you some of my ice cream. Immediately she picks the pen off the floor. She understands negotiation. Um, But her understanding of negotiation is simply from the standpoint of what she wants and what she gets out of the deal. She's not really thinking at all about dad's ice cream, dad's desire to have all of the ice cream. Um, All she's thinking about is Ellie. Um, that is uh, kind of an elementary approach to negotiation. Uh, as people become more experienced negotiators and more expert in negotiation, they begin to realize that negotiation is far more about um, everyone involved and, and sort of in s- really solving a problem. Everyone comes to a negotiation situation with certain interests. And the art of negotiation is to, A, uncover those interests. And, and make sure that everybody's clear on what they are. And you may, you may come to a negotiation situation not really knowing what you want. And um, a, a really good expert at the table helps you to think through
1: what you really want. Well, you know, it's important to know the lay of the land. In other words, where, you're, where you are and what you're negotiating for and what the customs are in that area. I know I, one time I was overseas, and uh, I think we've all experienced this, where you, you, you go to try to buy something on the street from somebody, and they expect you to bargain for the price, and, and, and you're not used to it back home, so you have that ethical dilemma, should I, should I bargain for the price, shouldn't I? We all have stories like that.
3: Right. I was in China uh, recently, and uh, we had a tour guide uh, who was sort of taking us around, and uh, she took us to an open-air market, and we, you have an opportunity to buy virtually any uh, designer brand you want in, in Shanghai. And, uh, sounds, like, uh, sounds like they're knockoffs, aren't they? It, sound, it, <laughs> sa- it sounds like Times Square, and, and, and it is, but it's Times Square on steroids. Um, and, and the guide that we were with made it very clear that there was an expectation of negotiation. That is, the price that was given for an item was certainly not the price that the vendor expected to get. So no matter how poor or how, uh, uh, how much you might say, listen, society's better off if I give, if I give this person a few more dollars. Uh, because they need it more than I do, uh, there's still a norm there that one negotiates, and it's and it's very, uh, very easy to get into the mode of doing the best you can for yourself in that situation.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I heard you say, uh, especially back at the CSSC course years ago. It still still rings true with me that you made the point that when you, when you cull down the whole essence of ethics, it's about being truthful, mm-hmm. and. Uh, we're in negotiations, so, and, and we see this all the time in negotiations where people are, are, are very quick to maybe give you half-truths or, or, or obfuscate the problem. How disclosing do you have to be in negotiations before you cross the ethical line?
3: Yeah, there's no there's no yes or no or, or pre-cut answer to that question. Uh, there clearly are situations where, uh, where disclosure um, may not be the best thing to do. Uh, for example, if I'm on the road, and I've got, uh, I've got a, fam- a car full of family, and it's 10 o'clock at night, and uh, uh, I pull up at a hotel, and I'm trying to get a room. Um, I'm not gonna tell the guy at the desk I have a car full of family out front. I'm going to try to be uh, as cool as I can. Especially if they're my family. It will. <laughs> or mine. Yeah. Um, so that's not a situation where I think disclosure is important. On the other hand, if it's something that the other party really needs to know in order to make a intelligent decision, mm-hmm. um, then I think I think disclosure becomes more of an issue and, and there becomes an obligation to disclose certain kinds or of information.
1: Like I have no money to pay you. That would that would be an important thing. I have no thing. money to pay you yeah, exactly. or
3: uh, or I am willing to give you more time if you need it, exactly. et cetera.
1: Well, we all view, we seem to view anyway, negotiations as a competition. There's a competition between the two sides. Uh, it's almost a game, uh, but is that how we should view negotiation, or, or is there a better way to look at
3: it? I believe that's an immature, immature way to think about negotiations, uh, that there's a tendency to think about it as a competition, but that really comes from the fixed pie kind of perspective, mm-hmm. whereas you think of, um, you think of all situations as, as what I get, he, he loses, and what he gets, I lose. But a lot of situations aren't that way. There's a possibility of trade-offs. There's the famous Jack Spratt rhyme that everybody knows, mm-hmm. and uh, and there there are situations where I can get uh, aspects of the solution that benefit me in return for giving up to something. I give something something up to you that benefits you, but I have less value in mm-hmm. it, and and we can we can walk away from the table a lot happier that way. You
1: know. You know. The other thing is. Uh we all try to seem to try to gain an advantage over the adversary. We want to have some information or some factual knowledge that helps us get to our, our, what we want, you know, to their detriment perhaps. And sometimes we find in our you know, day-to-day structured settlement negotiations and, 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 and claim negotiations, uh, sometimes one of the sides has maybe collected facts unethically on the other side. A lot of what we see, we call sub-Rosa, uh, sub-Rosa investigations, where you remember the old the Fortune Cookie movie where they're filming uh, yes. Jack Lemmon, uh, right. who's, who's also unethically <laughs> and right. faking his injury. So all those kinds of things, you, you gather these facts and you present them. Where's the ethics in, in all of that? I'm sure it becomes a real problem for well, I uh,
3: think uh, I, I think that where the, the data or information are, are collected in an illegal or inappropriate fashion, there's absolutely no question that that's an ethical breach. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what about the consequences of that? Well, the consequences have a lot to do with reputation, mm-hmm. memory, uh, and so forth. Um, you know, and if if this is a one-shot deal and you do it and you're never going to see that person again, well, it's, it's sort of like tipping when you're on vacation. You, uh, but that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just means that you don't have the sort of the reputational edge there to kind of keep you in line. There, it becomes a situation where it's up to the person to do right, even though there's no consequences in that case.
1: You know, the, the, the whole issue of right and wrong, it, it, it's a dilemma for all of us, but yet most things in life are somewhat ambiguous. They're not quite as clear-cut, and uh, there must be some ambiguous tactics that are used in negotiation that aren't quite right or wrong. Uh, in other words, for example, I was in a mediation the other day where somebody uh, made a a demand mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there and and, and the defendants were disgusted they, 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 they showed emotion they said that's crazy they went they got up and, they, and, and really when they walked out of the room they weren't that upset mm-hmm. but uh, oh, you know all these kinds of activities the game I, I guess you call it the, lo- the, the little dance that takes place a lot of ambigu- a- ambiguity there how do you how do you how do you see that
3: yeah that's uh, part of the drama of negotiation uh, when you when you begin to talk about bluffing mm-hmm. um, Bluffing is one of those areas where um, you could you could on paper make a case that it is a form of misleading the other party, but in reality, most CEOs of companies, most people who negotiate for a living, or frequently in their lives, will tell you that. Bluffing really isn't an ethic, unethical. It's actually expected, and in, in, in some cases, it plays plays a certain role in
1: kind of moving things along. Sure, um, this offer is going to be off the table at five o'clock. Right. you know, something like that. Right,
3: and you know, it's not going to be off the table. Right. Uh, but but it basically says that let's 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 not wait. Let's keep things going.
1: So let's let's wrap it up by asking this question: mm-hmm. Do the ends ever justify the means? I mean, we're trying to get to a resolution, and yet there are a lot of ways to get there and ethics, I'm sure, uh, we all know, play a part, but do, they, do the do ends justify the means?
3: Well, there's the actually cases? a philosophical position. Jeremy Bentham uh, had made the argument, in fact, that there are situations where the end results can justify the means, and mm-hmm. it would be the situation where everybody's happy by what happened. That is that you may not, you may, have, you may have done something, you may have not disclosed information because you knew people would go the wrong direction if you did. Hmm. And, and you were fairly clear that the right direction where everyone would would be better off, and the world, society, would be better off for this, was to get the outcome that that um, that was uh, that you wanted, and you would get in the way of that by disclosing too much information. So there are situations where, in fact, uh, you could argue that the end justifies the means, but, but before you start to do that, you have to be really smart on it. You have to know all the parties involved, what they get out of it, whether it's fair, the way that that happiness is distributed and so forth. So um, it, is a, uh, it is a tough standard to use. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we certainly got a lot out of this presentation and this discussion, and I really want to thank you, uh, Professor. Why don't you uh, give us a little insight. If someone wants to get in touch with you, how do they do that?
3: Well, I'm at the University of Notre Dame, uh, located in the Mendoza College of Business. And my email there is uh, econlon, that's E-C-O-N-L-O-N, at N D as in Notre Dame dot mm-hmm. Edu as in education.
1: Well that's terrific. I'm Larry Cohn. You can get in touch with me at 978 974 or of course at ringlerassociates.com. Uh you can hear all of our broadcasts on com or the Legaltalknetwork.com And that'll do it for this edition of Ringler Radio. We're broadcasting from NASA's annual meeting in Puerto Rico. Once again, I'd like to thank you, uh, Professor Edward Conlon from the University of Notre Dame, and uh, Dr. Judith McKay from Nova Southeastern University for being here today and talking about this important issue of ethics. In the meantime, it's a sunny day here. I hope it's good where you are. Go out and have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio ringler associates experience counts since 1975 ringler associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys ring the radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities including aviva genworth financial the hartford mass mutual medlife liberty life american general and pacific life and annuity